We all need to laugh. We choose truth over facts. And now for a perpetual political protest in progress. Judge my physical mental suit, my physical as well as my mental suit fitness. Coffee time. And welcome to the Amalcan Coffee Social Club, Conservative Hour of Power and Enlightenment Salon. Welcome to special episode number two, chapter two, with David Ignell, uh, our honored guest and uh, Alaska author. And uh, just been catching up with David uh, today about uh, the reception that uh, the first episode has received so far. And it looks like it's going well, David. Well, thanks, Jason. Um, I'm I'm uh, honored to uh, be here again today for Chapter 2 and uh, for the readers that have uh, stuck with us. Uh, chapter 1 was, was difficult, uh, but important. Uh, you know, and I, again, urge uh, listeners to uh, go to the hard copy, uh, especially for Chapter 1, because so much of it was quotes uh, from a treatise written 400 years ago in, uh, uh, in old English. And, uh, but, but it is important because it outlines so much that is important to the Alaska grand jury, uh, such as the independence from judges and prosecutors and the need to investigate closely and what that investigation should look like. And, and also in, in supporting penalties against uh, prosecutors and judges uh, who, who mislead, who, and, who and don't even, pursue the truth. Even the, even the king himself was subject. Even the, yes, even the king himself uh, was subject to this. And, and also, uh, there, was, there was a passage in there that talked about how grand juries didn't have formal rules. Uh, and, and that's something that we have gotten away with or away from. So, uh, I guess that was a slip of the tongue. Uh, judges and prosecutors have gotten away with that. And that's, uh, one of the main points of this book is to, uh, set everything back on, on course. Awesome. We look forward to uh, the next hour with David Ignell. And uh, like we did yesterday, we'll take a break right around the 30-minute mark uh, so that we can stretch our legs and get a refreshment and then jump back on. Of course, you and the audience won't know because that time will pass in an instant due to the magic of the switchboard here. But uh, we appreciate you sticking with us. So this is uh, Chapter 2 out of uh, 14 chapters. The floor is yours, David. Thank you. Chapter 2, Colonial Times, Common Law Powers Extended to Civic and Patriotic Matters. In America, the colonies incorporated the English common law grand jury into their legal systems. Over time, these colonial grand juries expanded the scope of their investigations beyond criminal matters into civic affairs of the government, and they began to report these findings to the public. These developments established additional and important common law precedents for the investigative and reporting power of grand juries, later guaranteed to Alaskans by our founders. 
The first regular colonial grand jury in America convened in 1635 in Massachusetts Bay Colony, soon after its founding. Its governor, former English lawyer John Winthrop, instructed the jurors to report all crimes and misdemeanors that came to its attention. The jurors responded by presenting more than 100 offenders, including several of the colony's magistrates. A year later, the grand jury of Plymouth Colony convened for its first time. Its 17 members elected at the town meetings. Governor William Bradford instructed the assembled grand jurors to, quote, inquire of all abuses within the body of government, unquote. This charge reflected the existing independence and investigatory powers of the grand jury, but now added civic matters to its jurisdiction. The grand jury's resulting presentments took on a flavor of public reports intended to increase the community's awareness and knowledge on matters of interest. In subsequent years, the Plymouth Grand Jury sharpened their focus on matters of community interest. The Plymouth Grand Jury complained of the lack of surveyors for repairing the highway. It questioned the rights of the governor and assistants to sell land to certain individuals, demanding to know which lands were to be reserved for purchasers and why a treasurer had not been chosen. It called out individuals who failed to serve the public adequately for neglecting the, the ferry across the river, for grinding corn improperly, and for giving short measure in selling beer. As colonial towns grew and matured, the grand jury became an instrument for popular participation in all levels of government, whether municipal, county, or provincial. Through their presentments, grand juries served to arouse public opinion on the need for civic reforms and motivated public officials into action. In the first half of the 18th century in both Boston and Philadelphia, grand juries took the lead in forcing the city to pave streets in ruinous condition. Presentments in Philadelphia demanding a paid watch resulted in passage of an ordinance setting up a board of wardens empowered to erect and maintain street lamps and to appoint watchmen. Grand juries in Annapolis followed this pattern when they complained of the condition of city streets, docks, and landings. In 1766, they protested incompetence and corruption in the city council. The jurors issued a remonstrance against neglected streets. The refusal of city officials to account for the proceeds of lotteries and the failure of council members to attend meetings. In Charleston, grand juries called attention to laxity in the city administration. They publicly identified the failure of constables and magistrates to enforce the Sabbath observance laws, disorderly behavior of the town watch, and neglect of officials to regulate the town markets properly. They suggested civic reforms, including an increased watch, better lighting, and the organization of a fire company. As the colonial era drew to a close, the American grand jury had evolved over the previous century to become an indispensable part of government in each of the colonies. In addition to evaluating criminal charges, grand juries now acted as local representatives 
that generally reflected the desires of the public at large. They presented their findings to the public. They proposed new laws and protected abuses in government. Excuse me. <laughs> they pro- let me say that over again. They proposed new laws and protested abuses in government. They enforced or refused to enforce laws guided by their collective sense of justice and protected their fellow citizens against indiscriminate or unfair prosecution by outsiders. When the American colonists began to clash with representatives of the English government, they also began to see the grand jury in an enhanced light as a protector of their liberties against an oppressive government. Lord Summers' treatise and similar writings of other Englishmen such as Sir Halls and Henry Kerr found their way to the colonies and served as guides to the independence of grand juries. On the eve of the American Revolution, grand juries followed the common law precedent established centuries earlier by their English predecessors in refusing to enforce certain criminal statutes and unpopular regulations. They failed to find a true bill when royal or loyal prosecutors sought to enforce criminal statutes favorable to England, among them laws regulating trade. As a collective As a collective bodies of citizens with diverse backgrounds, grand juries were in an excellent position to take the lead in opposing the English government. In Massachusetts, grand jurors were toasted as, quote, volunteers in the cause of truth and humanity, unquote, defending the people from tyranny. This reputation received an assist from a 1765 Boston grand jury that refused to indict the leaders of the Stamp Act riots. In 1768, a Suffolk grand jury refused to indict the editors of the Boston Gazette for libeling the royal governor after the chief justice threatened the panel, quote, they might be damned if they did not find a true bill, unquote. A 1769 Boston Grand Jury denounced soldiers quartered in the town for breaking and entering dwellings, waylaying citizens, and wounding a justice of the peace during a riot. In a similar vein, they refused to indict persons charged by the royal prosecutors of enticing soldiers to desert the king's army. When local merchant and leader John Hancock was harassed by the lo- by the royal authorities, the Boston grand jurors publicly censured the prosecutor for, quote, having received so many lucrative court favors, unquote. In 1770, a Philadelphia grand jury took matters even further. In addition to refusing to indict colonists accused of breaking royal trade laws, it proposed a series of protests against the British tea tax. It denounced the use of tea tax proceeds to pay the salaries of government officials. It declared its support of an agreement reached by local importers to shun British goods and pledge support towards a broader colonial program encouraging non-consumption of British goods. In 1774, the British government tried to counter the open mutiny of the Massachusetts grand juries by altering the selection of its members. The people were accustomed to electing their grand jurors at town meetings. 
But the royal government tried to change the system by authorizing its sheriffs to select them. This attempt to maneuver around the elective grand jury rankled the hearts and minds of of local citizens. People assembled in town meetings where they refused to consent to any change in the Massachusetts Constitution and denied the authority of any grand juries, jurors shown chosen by the sheriffs. Shortly before the royal government forced the new selection process into effect, the duly elected Suffolk County grand jurors, including Paul Revere and John Hancock's brother, refused to take their oath in front of the judge. They then adjourned to a tavern where they voted to publish their reasons for refusing to take the oath. Following the British Parliament's passage of the Coercive Acts in reaction to the Boston Tea Party, grand juries and other colonies began to oppose the royal government. In November of 1774, 40 local townsmen from the village of Greenwich, New Jersey, called an impromptu tea party after British ships had unloaded their goods and stored them in the cellar of a house near the marketplace. The group removed the tea chests from the cellar and burned them in an adjoining field. When the royal government sought criminal charges against the townsmen, the chief judge admonished the grand juries about the need to punish the, quote, wanton waste of property, unquote. However, the grand jury refused to return true bills on the indictments. When the judge brought the grand jurors back in and repeated his lecture, they exercised their independence from the court and remained steadfast in their refusal to indict. Even some of the British government's local judges shifted their loyalties and became influential supporters of the independence movement. One such judge was William Henry Drayton, born on his father's farm near Charleston, South Carolina, but educated in England. Originally opposed to independence, he was appointed to the colony's court in 1774. But later that year, Judge Drayton wrote the American Claim of Rights, which supported the Continental Congress. The British government responded by removing him from all posts. Judge Drayton replied by becoming a key member of the colony's rebel government. During the winters of 1774 and 1775, Mr. Drayton traveled throughout various South Carolina districts, urging the people to assert their rights and maintain their freedom. One local grand jury responded with a, quote, veritable little declaration of independence, unquote, in which they denounced the, quote, most dangerous and alarming nature of the power exercised by Parliament, unquote, in its taxation and legislation of the colonies. Grand juries and other colonies followed suit in the increasingly open revolt by Americans against the royal government. In February of 1775, New York City grand jurors protested the, quote, many oppressive acts of parliament, unquote. A grand jury in Newcastle, Delaware, agreed to promote a tax to create a fund for the defense of Delaware. In April of 1776, Mr. Drayton addressed a Charleston grand jury declaring that the colony's complete independence from England was, quote, the necessity of manifest destiny, unquote and the, quote, Almighty created America to be independent, unquote. The grand jurors responded by presenting as a public grievance 
the unjust, cruel, and diabolical acts of the British Parliament and warned those who through an ignorance of their true interests and just rights and from a want of proper information may be misled by our enemies. Following the Declaration of Independence on July 4, 1776, many grand juries throughout the colonies adopted patriotic resolutions denouncing Great Britain and urging all persons to support the war for freedom. Frequently, they endorsed the newly drafted state constitutions, expressing unfeigned satisfaction with the liberties guaranteed. In addition to their political protests, revolutionary era grand juries did not neglect to address local problems important to the people of their districts. Some grand juries recommended price controls for bacon, flour, and other essentials. Other grand juries protested the poor conditions of roads and ferries and the laxity of local law enforcement. Grand jurors throughout the colonies made certain that local agencies continued to provide basic services while political changes took place on higher levels. They scrutinized local public officials and drew attention to cases of neglect. They recommended new laws when they felt it was necessary. They inspected public records, audited local books, and set tax rates. A a staunch defender of the local grand jury was founding father James Wilson, nominated by George Washington as one of the original associate justices of the U.S. Supreme Court. In a series of law lectures delivered in Philadelphia in 1790, Judge Wilson placed no limit upon a grand jury's area of inquiry. He viewed the grand jury as an important instrument of democratic government by serving as a, quote, great channel of communication between those who make and administer the laws and those for whom the laws are made and administered, unquote. Another founding father, Judge Francis Hawkinson, echoed the observations of Lord Summers a century earlier when he wrote of the grand jury as, quote, a body of truth and power inferior to none but the legislature itself, unquote. The original draft of the U.S. Constitution was silent on the topic of grand juries, despite such broad and influential support for the institution in the fledging country. This omission was deliberate on account of constitutional delegates who wanted to avoid significant discussion of a federal court system because of the divide between federalists who favored a strong central government and anti-federalists who favored strong individual state rights. Had there been an attempt to define the relationship between federal and state courts and their grand juries, ratification of the Constitution may have failed. Governor Morris, a substantial contributor to the final draft of the Constitution and author of the preamble, would later explain that on the issue of federal courts and grand juries, quote, it became necessary to select phrases which would not alarm others, unquote. Despite this effort of the founders to avoid controversy, the right to indictment by a grand jury in all federal criminal cases became an important topic at several state conventions convened to ratify the Constitution. Massachusetts recommended the U.S. Constitution be amended to provide for grand jury indictments before a person could be tried for a capital offense. 
the conventions of New York and New Hampshire followed suit. Accordingly, the first Congress in September 1789 proposed 12 amendments to the U.S. Constitution, one of which ultimately became the Bill of Rights' Fifth Amendment's guarantee of a right to a grand jury indictment for all infamous or capital crimes. The Judiciary Act, also passed by Congress in 1789, required federal grand juries to attend each session of the federal circuit and district courts. Federal marshals selected federal grand jurors in much the same manner as the states, but those federal grand juries were much more limited in scope by investigating and presenting charges which violated specific federal laws. Federal grand juries developed into instruments of a centralized federal government, which had been granted limited powers under the Constitution. Local grand juries continued their dominance of local and state matters, whether criminal or civic. An important distinction between the two systems was the inability of federal grand jurors in local venues to become sufficiently familiar with the operation of the centralized U.S. government. Conversely, their counterparts serving in the state system retained the ability to check on the performance of local officials and suggest policies. The inherent conflicts between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists led to political battle lines being drawn over grand juries throughout the new nation. In 1793, President Washington issued his highly controversial Proclamation of Neutrality, which subjected citizens to criminal punishment or forfeiture if they, quote, aided hostilities, unquote, among a number of European countries at war with each other. Local citizens sitting on the federal grand juries refused to indict some of their community members who were charged. Federal judges reacted by using their persuasive position as a platform to promote Federalist policies. These practices antagonized anti-Federalists who resented the breach of judicial neutrality in domestic political matters. The Sedition Act, passed by Congress in 1798, resulted from confusion over whether federal grand juries had the power to return indictments where federal law had not been violated. The Sedition Act was also highly controversial and substantial conflict followed. Federal Judge Samuel Chase succeeded in persuading a federal grand jury in Richmond to indict Philadelphia publisher Thomas Callender for defaming Congress and the President of the, of the United States. A federal grand jury in Vermont indicted a congressman for characterizing U.S. President John Adams as having, quote, an unbounded thirst for ridiculous pomp, foolish adulation, and selfish avarice, unquote. Anti-Federalists began accusing federal grand juries as being partisan. Thomas Jefferson accused Federalist judges of perverting grand juries, quote, from a legal to a political engine, unquote, by inviting them, quote, to become inquisitors on the freedom of speech. Anti-Federalists responded in their newspapers that federal judges were, quote, converting the holy seat of law, reason, and equity into a rostrum from which they can harangue the populace under the pretense of instructing a grand jury, unquote. 
During alien and sedition trials, a Kentucky judge told the grand jury that its proper place was, quote, as a strong barrier between the supreme power of government and the citizens, unquote. Just as their predecessors in England century earlier, their duty as jurors was to shield the innocent from unjust persecutions. Those opposed to the Federalists gained the upper hand politically after the election of 1800 when Thomas Jefferson was elected president. The Republican-led repeal of the Judiciary Act in 1801 caused Federalist Judge Chase to increase the intensity of his speeches to federal grand juries on political matters. In 1804, the Republicans retaliated by bringing articles of impeachment against Judge Chase. He was charged with making improper attempts to induce grand juries to indict publishers on political grounds and with delivering several intemperate political addresses to grand juries. The House voted to impeach Judge Chase, but the Senate voted to acquit, failing to generate the requisite two-thirds vote. To many citizens of the New Republic, the federal courts had become like the former royal courts due to political prosecutions under the Sedition Act, the Neutrality Proclamation, and partisan addresses by Federalist judges. Many federal grand jurors followed the lead of their English and colonial predecessors by refusing to indict their fellow citizens on unpopular federal laws. When federal grand juries returned true bills on federal charges, they were often viewed as improperly influenced appendages of the federal courts rather than as representatives of the people. On the other hand, local grand juries, possessing full common law powers of investigation and indictment, and concerning themselves primarily with problems of local government, continued to be viewed favorably by most citizens. Like their English predecessors, they were regarded as barriers between the public and unjust government prosecutions. But now they were fully vested with an additional power under common law to keep a watchful eye on public officials and their administration of civic matters. And that's the end of chapter two. All right. So we're going to go ahead and take a quick commercial break and we'll be right back. Okay. Okay, and uh, our break is over, but uh, I would be remiss if we didn't uh, plug a couple of the folks that support the Amalcan Coffee Social Club and have generously offered some of their goods and services to our members for our quarterly prize drawings. Uh, Hot Dogs a la Carte in Soldatna. Uh, located over by the All-American Fitness Center, just down the road from us on the Kenai Spur Highway. They have uh, donated a family dinner. So that'll be one of the things that we draw in January as one of our lucky members will uh, get a dinner. So you don't have to worry about that uh, all night uh, or that evening for your, for your household. And um, if you got a big family, you know how, uh, how expensive dinner can be. Hot Dogs a la Carte provides us with all of our uh, cookies, our giant uh, covert cookies, the ones that are bigger than your head, and then our breakfast burritos, which everybody loves, and our uh, vegan bean burritos. So uh, check out Hot Dogs a la Carte. Also a reminder that the House on the Rock B&B in Soldovia and Soldovia Fishing Adventures is the grand prize, 
and uh, that prize is over $1,000. So if you're interested in seeing how you can become eligible to be potentially drawn for one of these great prizes, uh, you can check out our website, look at membership. Paid members are eligible for the grand prize drawing. Uh, Of course, we also have our uh, small jackpot drawing that we do for all of our free members. Uh, Membership is always free at Ammo Can Coffee, uh, but we do... uh, reward you and thank you for supporting us with your financial contributions if you choose to become a paid premium member. So uh, we're back with David Ignell and uh, we're just going to kind of, I guess, summarize real quick this chapter two and kind of talk about the importance of the distinction between the the federal grand jury system and and, um, the state and uh, grand jury system and kind of what we talked about. To me, David, it seems like the grand jury is balanced on the head of a pen and it's something that must be maintained and uh, supported and watched very closely. Absolutely, Jason. Uh, You know, that's going to be a recurring theme throughout my book. Uh, You know, in our last episode in chapter one, Lord Summers talked about that. He talked about how, you know, people started neglecting the grand jury and their rights started eroding. And, uh, you know, it's, and we'll see this in future chapters where it's a constant battle. Uh, There's always people who are attacking grand juries and it's usually people in power, uh, you know, people who perceive an interest in, in, uh, you know, holding the public under their thumb, whether it's big government or, uh, you know, big business, which is what, you know, chapter three is about. So it's a recurring theme that we're in, you know, and, and into Alaska. Uh, that's, that's what we're going to see in, in, uh, about seven or eight chapters from now when we, when we see what the, uh, the, the Alaska politicians tried to do to the grand jury after the Sheffield investigation in 1985. So yes, it's, it's something that we need to be constantly vigilant about. And, you know, chapter two, um, what was important for, you know, in summary, I, I would say three things. Number one, you have all that independence that comes over from, from England, but it's expanded into civic matters. It's no longer just criminal matters. It's civic matters and things of civic concerns. Uh, you know, and then concern number, the, the, the second issue is, is the, the patriotism of the grand jury. Uh, we see during the colonial era where, uh, you know, when, when, when the citizens, uh, didn't like some of the, some of the rules or some of the laws that the government was passing, they, they refused to indict, you know, from a criminal standpoint. So, uh, they, you know, the grand jury evolved into this protection of liberties. And, and, you know, again, this goes back to chapter one where even the king, didn't have control over the grand jury. So that's a consistent theme that, that runs from England uh, over to America. And then the third point of, of chapter two was this distinction between state grand juries and federal grand juries. And, uh, you know, how federal grand juries, you know, kind of became a platform for federalism and, and, were disregarded and, and uh, you know, criticized for that. 
where, you know, the state grand juries continued this, you know, to, to have favor in the public eye because the local grand juries, the state grand juries were, were looking after their interests. And I think, you know, that's, that's not to be forgotten. You know, I was reminded in a phone call earlier today that we are a republic. We're a republic of 50 states. And so the grand jury of each state is important. And, you know, one of the reasons I, I devoted so much attention to the federal grand jury in Chapter 2 is because later on in my book, you'll, we'll, we'll talk about this unconstitutional court rule 6.1 which has been used to suppress grand jury reports. And that, that rule came from the federal rules. And, you know, people said, well, the federal government has this for their grand jury, so this would be a good idea for us too. And that's, that's absolutely false. And well, so I wanted, to, I wanted to draw that distinction, you know, early on in the book. And, and you know, my book follows in pretty much chronological order. So uh, that's where this separation between the state grand jury and the federal grand jury first started was at, was at the very beginning. Well, in, with systems, I mean, whether you're talking about mechanical systems or uh, social systems or systems of governance, you have some very distinct um, mechanisms at play and, and inputs that are necessary for the healthy function of the system. Uh, and it, for me, when when I read or, or listen to you read, uh, you know, this chapter two, my mind goes to this word picture, this analogy of a, of a system. And, and, and I think right now, cause, uh, I need to get my furnace uh, serviced. <laughs> I think of my, my furnace here in Alaska, you know, we don't really run the furnace during the summer, but, uh, as the temperatures drop and we rely more and more on that uh, mechanical system to provide for our daily comfort and, and uh, heat, uh, the system comes under stress. Well, it's designed for that stress. But if we've neglected to change the, the air filter on the system or uh, change, uh, you know, um, maintain the, the zone valves properly and make sure that everything's well-oiled and, and that uh, everything is functioning, uh, the burners uh, operating correctly, that system will become less and less efficient over time until one day it just finally says, I can't maintain anymore, and it just ceases functioning altogether. And so, so when I, when I hear you read about, you talk about this, this federalist idea, and then we go back to chapter one and we talk about uh, common law, you know, um, and how uh, jurors which were to be selected from the county or community in which the offense, you know, that was being investigated or, uh, you know, p- uh, facing potential indictment, uh, where that occurred... Um, that harkens back to this idea, this kind of Republican idea of, of government at the most localized level possible with the maximum amount of local representation possible and that we don't govern local affairs, you know, with despotic tyrants living halfway around the globe in England, you know, telling us uh, what's best for us, that, that, that it's really our local community that should rule and that we as citizens in this Republican form of democracy, we the people are the rulers. 
And um, so we look forward to uh, hearing more in chapter two or chapter three, rather. And uh, uh, we're going to go ahead and roll out uh, a chapter a day. So we rolled out the first chapter yesterday, uh, which was awesome. We got really good response from folks. And we're going to roll out chapter two today for folks. Chapter three will be available tomorrow and so on. But uh, just wanted to um, thank you once again, David, for your willingness to spend an hour with us and uh, unpack this really timely publication that you've put together you have any final comments before we close for for the this episode uh before we is that before we start on on chapter three then yes sir yeah well and and i think you know i we're kind of stumbling our way through the dark here uh i'm thinking maybe for chapter three to to maybe start with the quick overview up front uh so at least listeners kind of know what's coming at them and and uh so on chapter three, uh, is, which is one of the shortest chapters of my book, uh, we're going to look at how the grand jury expands from colonial times into industrial America. Uh, we have a huge influx of, of uh, immigrants into the country. Uh, the territory is expanding. Government's increasing. Uh, corporations are, are getting bigger. And... The, the need for a grand jury increases during this time. And with that, and, uh, we are out of time. We will uh, catch you on the next uh, episode here, Chapter 3. And as always, remember, if you're thirsty, Ammo Kicking Coffee Social Club is open and ready for you. Thank you, David. And we will uh, sign on uh, with our next episode. Keep uh, listening to the installments. And share this with your friends, like it on Facebook, and uh, access it uh, on a variety of platforms. We look forward to talking to you uh, again here shortly. You bet.